represented what that person was going to be celebrating on October 31st that I kind of was shocked uh, at his willingness to pay such a hydro bill uh, with all the pumps necessary to keep these inflated objects open. And I, I turned to the, my grandchildren and I just kind of pointed out that that's not what October 31st is truly all about. It was one of those teachable moments where uh, Papa can inject some history into the next generation, and uh, I want to kind of do that this morning also. You see, October 31st, while our culture will be focused on candy and things that go bump in the night, uh, for we who are followers of Jesus Christ, we who are of the Christian faith, October 31st truly has a much more significant meaning. It's Reformation Day. Uh, it's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle chapel door. And that marked the beginning of Reformation. And out of that, next slide will work. Next one. Great, there he is. This is a Kodak moment. An artist has obviously taken some liberties with this. And that's really what October 31st is for me as I look back at history and how do I make history relevant for the next generation so that they're not uh, looking at October 31st as the rest of our culture is looking at it as an opportunity to go out and get candies and scare somebody. The reason I mention that is the principles that grew out of the Reformation are so vital for us today. Whether we want to emphasize that our faith and our doctrine and our practice in life is solely based on Scripture, or whether we want to celebrate together that it's solely because of the grace of God that we're here this morning, or whether we want to focus on the fact that it's solely faith in Christ that gives me purpose and I can experience abundant life because of that, or whether we want to look at the fact that it's only because of Christ, Christ alone. And then when we begin to ask questions about the meaning and purpose of life, and as we wrestle with that question through the various stages of life, we have that important answer that resonates through the Protestant Reformation. It's only for the glory of God. And so this morning, I want to take us back in time. I really appreciated that uh, Back to Future clip. I will be turning my clock back, but I want to take us back to a very important time in history. I want to take us back to 1446 B.C. And if you do the math, that's about 3,500 years ago. And then after that, I want us to go into an upper room and see the same ancient meal now made relevant 
as Christ sits with his disciples in about 30 AD. And if we had the time, we could go into the future and we could sit at the banquet table of the bridegroom and we could marvel as we think of Revelation 19, 9 to 10. So we're going to cross the bridge of time and culture but still ask that same single question. How can I make an ancient meal relevant? But before we do that, I want to ask for your permission to pause and to acknowledge the horrific anti-Semitic crime of yesterday. Eleven people are gunned down at the Squirrel Hill Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Two remain in critical condition. Our hearts and prayers need to cry out to our Lord. And there is no room in the Christian community for any anti-Semitism our faith is grounded and built with a Jewish heritage. And this ancient meal connects us. Let's open to Exodus chapter 12. Let me read for us the first 20 verses. And then in a moment, we're going to place it in its context, historically, and also in the context of the gospel narrative. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are determined the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect. You may take from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I shall pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. 
and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. Whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. Another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on those days except to prayer, 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 food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this day that I brought your division out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Whether he's a stranger or native-born, eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. We enjoy uh, taking short holidays to Victoria. And uh, Bev and I just find as soon as you get on the ferry, it feels you're on holiday. And when you get over to Victoria, you enjoy the beautiful harbor, and uh, it's just a wonderful getaway. This last summer, I was particularly excited because at the Royal Museum in Victoria, they had the Egyptian ex exhibit. And I was really excited about that because our men's study group was going to be studying the book of Exodus. And I thought, this would be great. I can get first-hand information and I can get prepared for what I'll experience as I go through the book of Exodus. Well, first you have the IMAX, which really looked at the mysteries of Egypt and they got your adrenaline going and it was phenomenal. And following that, you were then directed to begin the exhibits of Egypt. And as I was going through the various exhibits, I was waiting for about the 18th dynasty, the 15th century, to see how they would display some of the amazing building projects and how they would actually talk about the labor force that they needed to produce these amazing feats. And as I rounded the corner, there was a panel that replicated some of the panels that they've discovered in some of the tombs in the valley of the pharaohs. And one of the panels features the whole production of brick making. And on the panel, it goes from gathering up the straw, gathering up the mud, and then the forming and the drying and the carrying and so forth. And that whole panel 
you see that there are taskmasters, there are supervisors, there are slave drivers. And so I was then interested to find out how Egypt retells its own history. And then in the middle of the room, there was this amazing display, something that those who love architectural work, and they make the models to demonstrate what the housing was like. But I heard this voice, and that was actually on the next display, and and, and it, it began to become quite annoying. This person was saying that Pharaoh had this amazing building project strategy in the economy of Egypt. And then it went on to say that Pharaoh was so gracious and generous with his people that he provided housing for the labor force. He provided food. And then the next panel showed this wonderful picture of farmers being yanked off the farm, put on a boat, brought down to the delta to build these projects and to be involved in the brick making. And the idea was it was an honor, it was a privilege to serve the incarnate God and Pharaoh, to be involved in this amazing mission of bringing glory to all of Egypt. I was shocked. That's not the history that I know. That's not what I read in Scripture. And then I discovered that the pharaohs who used royal scribes controlled the writing of history. It was propaganda. It's the oldest trick in the book. In fact, there are cases where pharaohs have tried to remove any evidence of a pharaoh that they disapproved of. And they have gone back and actually destroyed stellas and inscriptions so that their memory would be lost. No wonder there's little evidence in Egyptology that would support the historical redemptive narrative of Exodus. There's little evidence. They don't speak of this great Semitic population that they put into forced labor and they experience human cruelty at its worst. And yet God multiplied them. And God multiplied them. So as we look at Exodus 12, let's hear the historical redemptive story that is told in this book, recognizing that when it comes to archaeological evidence and even the story and evidence that we'll get out of Egyptology, there's very little to support the story. But this is a historical story. And this ancient meal celebrates an historical redemptive event that looks ahead to the cross of Christ, which is an historical redemptive event that points ahead to a future event when you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, will be gathered at that great banquet table 
How do you make this ancient meal relevant to the next generation? Let's run the next clip where we can help have the assistance of um, the Bible project putting this narrative into its historical context because obviously I don't have uh, the time, and neither do you, to bring you up to speed on where chapter 12 fits, but this little clip from Bible Project will help us all. Can we find that one? The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down, as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, 
Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. All right. Much better job in five minutes with artwork than I can do verbally, right? Pictures worth a thousand words. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 12 and discover how we can make an ancient meal relevant. The first thing we need to recognize is that this meal marks an historical day. And this historical day needs to be marked throughout the generations. If you take a look at this chapter, you'll see his emphasis, this day, this day, this day. 
It repeats itself at least four times in our passage. This day, what is he referring to? He's referring to that redemptive event where sovereign almighty God, the creator of the universe, who has revealed himself as Yahweh, brings judgment against Pharaoh, against Egypt, and the gods of Egypt, and he passes over his people because of the sign of the blood. This is a redemptive event. This was to mark the beginning of their new year. This was to be one of the first things that they did in their new year. Now some have looked at their calendar and looked at it as maybe it's an agricultural calendar or or maybe it's connected to this or that. It's actually a calendar designed to remind them of who God is and what God is doing, what he's done in the past. Each of their festivals is designed to point to God's redemptive work so that sustains them in their faith and it also provides them an avenue, an opportunity to share in the next generation. And so when did this day occur? Well, if you drop your finger down later in the chapter, there is some historical data there that we need to wrestle with. If you go down to verse 40, the author gives us this chronological data. Now, the length of time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of the 430 years, To that very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. In essence, that's what the Passover celebrates. So, 430 years. Let's work that in the biblical chronology that we have in Scripture. Genesis 15, 13, and 16, in one of the developments where God is explaining his covenant with Abram, he says to Abram that his descendants will sojourn in Egypt until the sins of the Amorites have been completed, and they'll be there for 400 years. Verse 16 says they'll be there for four generations. Back in Exodus 7, you have the genealogy of Aaron and Moses. It is not coincidental, nor is it haphazardly put together. It is selectively put together, but it represents four generations. This also comes up in Stephen's defense in Acts chapter 7, where he refers to this 400 year. Paul refers to it in Galatians 3, where he also talks about 400 years. 
What's that calculate out to? Well, when did Jacob and his tribe of 70 actually settle in Egypt? If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we also discover another important data provided there. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we discover, based on the date of Solomon's reign, which would be, according to the passage, 966, the author works backward, and he uses a similar time frame, I should have had this marked. My fingers are slow these days. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, in, 400 and, in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon, reign of Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. That brings us to the middle of the 15th century or the 18th dynasty of the pharaohs in Egypt. Now I say that with a lot of passion, maybe a little bit too much dogmatism, and I have to acknowledge that not everybody agrees, but I think they're wrong. Some would say it happens in the middle of the 13th century. And those who are wonderful scholars, those who are brothers in the faith, who are devout followers of Jesus Christ, they've had some lively debate on when this actually happened. I tend to park myself at about 1450 B.C. But even if it was in the middle of the 13th century, that doesn't change the fact that on this day, whatever it was, 1450 B.C. or in the middle of the 13th century, God delivered his people out of the house of bondage. And that's what this ancient meal celebrates. So this meal is anchored in history. This ritual, this memorial celebration is anchored in history. And so too is the meal that you and I gather around. It's anchored in history. It's a redemptive event that our almighty gracious God sent his one and only son in the flesh, the firstborn, the perfect lamb slain for the sins of the world. He died for our sins so that you and I might have a right relationship from the Father, with the Father. Now, there are three uh, descriptions of this meal that are also very important to, to recognize. And as you read it, you begin to understand the significance of this meal. The first is memorial. It's a memorial. It, it, it calls back to memory things that God has done and revealed that impact your present and your future. 
And if you go to the upper room, and if you go to the instructions given to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's what this meal is. It's a remembrance. It's something that you and I can enter into because we constantly need to be reminded because we're so easily distracted and so we so quickly forget. The other word, it's a feast. Now when you think of a feast, uh, maybe you have images of a cruise you've just come back from. Uh, Maybe you have images of a wonderful church potluck. Maybe you have images of brunch this afternoon. I don't know what image you have. But as soon as I say the word feast, that immediately creates a desire. Immediately, you begin to salivate. At least I do. You immediately think of who you're going to see at that event. And so, do we come as we gather around the table of the Lord with that anticipation, that excitement, that, that desire for community to, to celebrate together because this is a feast, a feast to the Lord. The third word that is used is, it's a lasting ordinance. It's to continue from one generation to the next. Now, how do we do that? That leads me to my next point that I want to chat with you. This ancient meal, celebrated either in the 15th century B.C. or in the middle of the 13th century, the night where God is passing over Egypt, great holy wrath, and deliver his people out of bondage, is a critical meal that provides not only the history, but the the identity of the Jewish people. It's an important ritual. And going forward, we see how the disciples gathered in the upper room are there to eat that ancient meal. And as you read the gospel, you see the Lord Jesus Christ taking that ancient meal, taking the bread, taking the cup, and giving it a new significance for generations to come. And each time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the challenge before us is, how do you make this ancient meal relevant? throughout our generations. It's interesting to me that we'll have classes on baptism, we'll have classes on church membership, we'll have all kinds of celebrations of baptisms, and of course we gather monthly for the Lord's table, but we have very little instruction on how to make this peculiar meal meaningful for my grandchildren, maybe for your great-grandchildren, maybe for your family. We haven't taken the time to ask that question. And yet, this is a memorial meal. This is 
of feasts. This is something that continues throughout the generations until he comes. Do we come with expectation, longing for his coming? Do we come longing for community? Do we come longing to celebrate in his presence? As we're driving here, what's the conversation in the car? Maybe even the night before, after the kids have all been bathed and, and tucked in and the last call for a glass of water has gone out. You know the tricks they play, right? Anything to put off turning the light off, right? Was there any kind of conversation that tomorrow we'll be gathered as God's people to worship him? We're going to take time to pass the bread. We're going to take time to share the cup. Is there any kind of conversation happening? And I look back at the way I brought my kids up, and I'm a pastor. What am I doing with my grandchildren so that this ancient meal becomes relevant to them? Why do we do this? Then personally, how do I prepare my heart and mind? What significance is there to remember the atoning work of Jesus Christ? How does that change my living now and into the future? Because in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Christ is called our Paschal, our Passover lamb. Christ is the Passover lamb. This meal is all about him. May, may the words of Jesus, the Passover, linger in our ears. Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup. When he given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. It's up to you and me to make this ancient meal relevant. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand again. Let's sing.